0: Morning, as we stand in reverence of God's word, um, this morning's text will come from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, 4 through 9. It'll be here on the screen as well. Deuteronomy 6, I said 4 through 9, but it's actually 1 through 8. I have no idea why I said 6. I have no idea. I must have looked at some numbers somewhere. Um, but it's Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8. And it says there in our word this morning. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them and in the, in, in lead, excuse me, do them in the land to which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. And that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let us pray this morning. Lord god we come before you now we love you we thank you for your word lord we pray that your word would be able to do and speak in ways that man's cannot and it is promised that it will so lord we pray that your word would not grow uh, to, uh grow cold that we would not depart from it and that it would not depart from us may it seek to accomplish all that you have it to do this day we love you we thank you lord god be with us now as we open this word and may it penetrate our minds, hearts, and souls. It is in your name we pray. Christ Jesus, amen. Amen, you may be seated this morning. Men, happy Father's Day. There you go. Now, moms, remember what I told you? I know, don't, yeah, I told you, you didn't get gypped on Mother's Day, okay? Next year, I'm coming, after, I'm coming to encourage you guys, okay? And next year, the dads will just be like chop liver, okay? We'll, have to, we'll just have something else for them. We'll do this every once in a while. It's braddy. Today, however, is a day that we celebrate our fathers, and we want to do so in this room. Now listen, before I get started, I had a video that I wanted to show you um, from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. It was a glorious video. It had beautiful music in the background. It would have pulled your heartstrings and made you cry if you're Kyle Schiff, all right? And And then I had it. Was gonna, I was going to post it and show it to you. That's my introduction. And then Scott came up to me and says, you know, that's against the law. <laughs> and there's some steps with it too. Something about YouTube likes to get their money. Did y'all know that? So I'm not showing the video, Scott. But what I will do is I'll explain uh, what this scene is. I've always, if you, if you get a chance, you can look it up. Not, not in church. Don't do it right now. Go home and watch it today. By an athlete by the name of Derek Redmond, and I believe uh, Derek Redmond, I believe read in the 400. I can't remember what race it really actually was, but in qualifiers, Derek Redmond in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics for America took off running. He was doing fairly well in the race when all of a sudden, as he goes around the last turn, turn three and four, if you're in track, that's right there between, right there in the middle there, and he pops his hamstring. It just snaps. And you see him in the video. He grabs the back ha- uh, his hamstring and he goes to the ground. The, ra- the race continues on. He's there on the, the track. He gets up and he begins to basically limp and hobble as to finish the race. Pain is all over his face. He's now in tears holding this. Now people are coming up to help him. And all of a sudden in the background you see uh, this man, this older gentleman. And he's like literally like kind of in the faces of the people. And he's just pushing people back. Security is there to keep back this man from getting to the field. And guess what? Security can't hold him back. Derek Redmond's father was that man. He jumps out of the crowd, jumps through two levels of security, takes his son, picks him up, puts him around his uh, neck, and he begins to walk with Derek Rebin to the finish line. Officials are coming out. Medical, they have to, they got another race to get. They don't want to get, you know, he's also hurt. They need to get an attention. And you should, I love, I love the scene. Derek Rebin's father, I mean, it's like, if, I know that he's, I just have to believe he's a nice man, but he wasn't nice this day. He's sitting there with his son and he's walking with his son and people are coming. He's like, get away from me. And you can see it, mouth on his mouth. He's sitting there saying, and if you read the account, my son will finish his race. My son will finish his race. Even thinking about it, I always get emotional. What a beautiful picture of an earthly father who comes down against all odds, picks up his son. He, you know he, he, how many times he took that young boy to his track meets. How much time and energy raising this young man to see him come to the pinnacle of all that he has worked for, and he falls short only for his father to pick him up and run the race with him to completion. To me, the visual picture is a beautiful picture, and it's an earthly one, of the Father in heaven in whom we serve. Amen? It is a beautiful picture. However, if we're honest, maybe some of you, How many of you have a perfect father? Raise your hand if you do. I'm glad. I'm so glad because I was about to like, I was about to just quit everything I do and just follow this man, right? We do, listen, we do not have perfect fathers here. Some of you may have less than perfect fathers. You know what I mean by that? Fathers who weren't present. Maybe fathers who didn't show up. Maybe there's fathers who have done uh, inexplicably horrible things to you. And as I look at that picture of the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, all I can stop to think is we have a father who is better and greater than any earthly father we could possibly imagine. And what I love about the father in heaven is he comes the whole way for his children. He comes the entire distance. Sadly, in our culture, fatherhood and masculinity as a whole are under attack. I don't know if you knew that. And are continually being marginalized Gone are the examples of the fathers that we used to have on uh, television, on many sitcoms in America. Some of you know who these are. I'm doing my clicky thing because I, I was scared that if I told Madison, hey, do that one family, she'd be like, who are they? Right? She, she's a teenager. She do not know who these black and white folks are. She's like, I didn't even know TV ever came in black and white. Right? If you remember, Leave it to Beaver, the father from the Donna Reed show. One of my favorites is Andy Griffith right now I'm not speaking to the society in which they lived I'm not pointing back to a time of social construct what I am pointing to and what I do want to uh, make, make mention of is how these fathers worked and they came home and if you always know in the show they always showed up didn't they they were always there for their children They were there to take seriously the responsibility and the role of being a dad, to being a husband in the home. As time went on, we we had that in the uh, the early stages of American television. Back into the 80s, which I remember watching, men who were often, as in resolve, they were strong, they were sacrificial, they were decisive, always a source of advice. And who were there, they were present. You all, whether it be back in the black and white day or even, even in the early 80s, they were present. No longer do we see fathers that were represented in sitcoms like the Cosby Show, Dr. Huxtable, family ties, growing pains, maybe even in Full House. America once understood the importance of the father. By the late 80's and early 90's, something began to happen within our own culture at that time. Gone were the days of Leaf It the Beaver. Gone were the days of, of Donna Reed's show. Gone were the days of Dr. Huxtable from the Cosby Show. And in came a new breed of father in American television and culture. We got Homer Simpson. We got married with children, we got the Roseanne Barr show, which their fathers, if you remember watching those, and I grew up watching those, by the late 1980s, our culture had grown so tired, maybe we progressed, we we, we got past that which we thought was corny or syrupy stuff when it comes to dads. And with these shows, the war on men was being waged. And many of these shows, that betray the betrayal of a modern American father and it still continues today is of a man who is a bumbling, selfish idiot. Hardly ever present. Whatever you want to do, honey. Bad advice. Just a massive mess up. But... In the 80s, in early 90s, even though this looked harmless enough, we laughed about it, we gawked at it. Many probably at this point in time, we found ourselves entertained by it because we either had a father like that or we knew many who were like that anyway. It was a good character. Now I believe that now in those days, something was happening of entertainment value, but I believe today something even more sinister is going on for the soul of the father and the man Specifically in America, I was reading. I was reading a New York Times article. A New York Times article on August twenty-fourth. Now listen to this. Listen to this date: 2012. 2012 that's, that's now we've got some. That's almost it's over. It's a decade ago. And the title of the the, the article was "Men Who Needs Them." Men, who needs them? I want to kind of show you, I'm going to steal a little bit, I'm going to quote from that article. Quote, that bias, Let us tell you what this is, making reference to men being important in our society. The whole article goes on to say that men aren't that valuable. We don't really need them. Quote, that bias, however, is becoming harder to sustain, meaning we need men, as men become less relevant to both reproduction and parenting. Women aren't just becoming man's equal, it's increasingly clear that mankind itself is a gross misnomer. Ultimately, the question is, does mankind really need men at all? With human cloning technology just around the corner, and enough frozen sperm in the world to already populate many generations, perhaps we should perform a cost-benefit analysis. The whole article is about men important and why they're not. Pick back up the quote. When I explained this to a female colleague and asked her if she thought that there was yet anything irreplaceable about men, she answered, "Well, they are entertaining. We got that. At least we got that. Men, we're entertaining. Hope that's enough to keep Hope to keep our our uh, our gender going." We are there to be laughed at and no longer taken seriously. And our culture continually says so much to you men in this room, who whether you're a grandfather or a young father, or specifically you young men in the, in the room who are college age and high school. Listen to me. The world is telling you every day that you're not that important. And I'm going to tell you something right now. It is an absolute biblical lie. That is a lie, biblically speaking. Honestly, I would say to you that our culture can't be farther from the truth in that reality. We'll be looking at that here in a little bit. We have this thing connected with masculinity today. We have a little word that we like to throw around in our culture. We call it toxic masculinity. Have you heard this yet? Toxic masculinity. In psychology, toxic masculinity refers to, listen, traditional cultural masculine norms that can be harmful to men, women, and society overall. And I want to tell you something really quickly. Women specifically listen to me. Young men listen to me. There is such thing. I do believe there is a such thing as toxic masculinity. Did you know that? And I am for sure, as a Christian man, and as we all in this room, should be not okay with any form of toxic masculinity. We are not for chauvinism. We are not for abuse. And men who are out of control and not in check, brothers and sisters alike, I say no to toxic masculinity. The Bible actually speaks of no to toxic masculinity. But I am honestly dumbfounded that guidelines by many psychological professionals today could so overtly label traditional masculinity as harmful or toxic. Maybe we're using the wrong measuring stick. Instead of challenging the negatives, which I'm saying, let's do that. Let's do more of that in our culture. Let's do that. I mean, have you saw the SBC report that we had a couple weeks ago and months ago, right? Let's do more of holding that toxic masculinity in check. How about it? Let's do it. From the pulpit, I'm saying, let us attack toxic masculinity. And I think the greatest way to attack toxic masculinity is to understand biblical masculinity again. Biblical masculinity, manhood is I believe the weapon against the toxic. It's, it's what will kill toxic masculinity in our day and age. But our culture today has thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Sadly brothers and sisters, even in the church today, men are buying into these lies. While our culture may be screaming to you that you are not needed or important, the scripture would paint a very different picture. And a picture that honestly stands in stark contradiction to many of the associated evils of what has been labeled toxic masculinity. Brothers and sisters, we don't need less masculinity. We need more in our culture. And we'll explain what that looks like through God's word. So this morning, again, that is introduction. What I want us to look at is Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8 again. So if you have that before you in your Bible, let us look at that. I've told you this before. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8 is one of the most holy texts in the Jewish faith. It's called the Shema. And in the Shema, it was it, it's, it, it's something of value to the Jew because literally when a child was born, Firstborn out of its mother's womb, the, 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 the priest or the head of the household, the father would literally take that child and the first words that the child was to hear was this text of scripture, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. The text before us is what the first thing that a Jewish baby was to hear. The question I had this morning before us is Deuteronomy 6, 1-8, who is it written to? The question is who. We see the who in verse 1. In verse 1. And if you look with me in verse 4a. Now this is the commandment, the statute and the rules that he, the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. The first thing we know is that this Deuteronomy 6, 1-8 is written specifically, first and foremost, primarily to the Jew. And it's for a Jewish people that were going to be coming out of the land of Egypt. And they're, going, they're coming out of a land that does not really respect or care for them at all. It's a culture that they are uh, strangers in, in Egypt. And now they're going to possess the land that God had promised the nation of Israel. And so this is what I want you to see. They go from one place where they're strangers and pilgrims. And guess where they're going next? Into a new place where the people do not understand you, they will not accept you, you will still be a stranger in a foreign land, at least for a time, the land that they will go to possess. And also in 4a, hero Israel, meaning the the nation of Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The who of the text is the nation of Israel going into a land that would be hostile to them, their ideals, their beliefs and convictions. And this is why they are told to hold fast to something in the text. And the question is, what is the something? What was God saying that as you leave Egypt and go into a land not your own, what are you to hold on to as a, as a people and as a nation? As a nation, what should you hold on to? Look at the in verse 6. Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. These words. Verse 1 Says it even more explicitly. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. The thing that the nation of Israel is supposed to hold on to, connect with, is the very word of God. Deuteronomy five, right before Deuteronomy six, that we have our text this morning, is the Ten Commandments. So it can mean it's a. I believe it's a two. Two meaning here, dual meaning. One, it is the Ten Commandments, the actual uh, litmus test of what is holiness and righteousness and goodness for the nation of Israel. And I would say all men and women, God's holy standard, the Ten Absolute Commandments. But if you remember, also the Torah, which is the law, also refers to the first five books of the Bible as well, which is, at that time, God's Word, His Word. It's his law, his precepts, and his words. When you leave Egypt, when you go to a land not your own, you will be tossed to and fro. Everything is coming at you. And what I want you to know, nation of Israel, is to hold fast to my word. What God says to the nation. It was not only a standard of morality for those who were God's people, however, ultimately the law pointed to the reality of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. How many of you have read the first five books of the Bible? It's important, you know why? I don't know if you know this or not, I'm gonna go ahead and fill you in. Do you know what the first five books is all about? Jesus. Nuh-uh, I read it, I didn't see Jesus in there not one time. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, the the first, Genesis is about Jesus. Oh yeah, he shows up several times. When you leave Israel, or Egypt, When you go to take possession of a land, a strange land where they're not going to love you, listen, you need to remember and hold fastly and tightly to God's word. While this may have been written to a specific group, the text has massive practical implications. Yes, listen, for us in this room here in the 21st century today as well. You see, we are living in a hostile land. Hello? Brothers and sisters, did you wake up today and realize that you are no longer in Jerusalem? You never were. I'm just saying it's not gotten too peaceful for us, has it? And it's growing more and more contentious and hostile to the ideas of the family, God's word, the gospel. We are growing more and more in a land not our own. While the Jews had the law to point them to Christ, morality, yes, and truth, we god's people today have his complete word the bible and his spirit that causes us to remember christ in the gospel today so i would say who the nation of israel at a specific time but i would also say that this text is for who verse two that you may fear the lord your god You and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Not only is it for the nation of Israel, a specific people at a specific time, it is also, listen to me, it's a multi-generational command. It's given to fathers specifically. Men in the room, listen. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 8 is one of those passages that you can put in your back pocket and know that it was made for you. That you may fear the Lord, your God, and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Ephesians 6, 4. If you can get that for me, Madison. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers. Fathers. In other words, fathers, your instruction and duty does not cease the moment you help conceive a child. No, children can still make children. Fatherhood starts in the womb. How will you show up? It does not end when your children are out of diapers, when they get their driver's license, graduate from high school or college, when they get married or when they have their own children. The task of discipling your children and your grandchildren is a task that shall follow you, all of us. Men, listen to me. It shall follow you till your grave. God has a design and a purpose for men. Let me say it again. God has a purpose and a design for men. And if you're like me, I don't know about many of your testimonies how you came to know Christ or your family dynamic, but I'll tell you this I have four children that I don't deserve. And I was a man in my own testimony and the way in which I came to Christ. I should be a dead man, literally, physically, in the grave. Almost 25 years later, from that moment, I look around. And I see that God has blessed me and my household, me and my wife, with four great and wonderful children, which I don't deserve to be even called their father. They are a blessing, they are a gift. Sometimes, even me in 21st century America forget the blessing and the gift that I have to be called a father. It's an honor. There are men in this room who you, you can't call yourself a father in the traditional sense, in the sense that maybe it's having difficulties having children. Hey, listen, how will you be a spiritual father to those in this room or outside of this room who need someone? My my son is at a certain age at 15 and a little younger. We go out sometimes and we play basketball or we'll do something and just see some of these young men, young boys that come and, hey, can I play? They're not there with their dad. Not saying that their dads are horrible, whatever. But I'm trying to say, like, what I'm saying is you, you meet some of these kids, these young men specifically, and girls. And if I just, as a dad, as a person, I'm 41 years old, if I just ask them how they're doing, I become like their best friend. They're so desperate. For some type of attention. Physical fathers. Biological fathers in this room. Listen. But you men who are not fathers in the traditional sense. This passage is still for you. Amen. Amen. Men, what is your legacy this morning? What will outlive you in the lives of your children? They are the greatest investment you can possibly invest that means your time, energy, yeah, money, but time. What truly makes us men in this room? Is it your love of a favorite football team, baseball, or basketball team? Golden State say Warriors are champions again. That's my team. I don't know if you know that. Steph Curry, MVP, finals MVP, legacy, sealed. Amen. But is this what makes me a man? Is this what defines my masculinity? You know me, when I go this, it means no. Is it my hobbies? Is it your hobbies? Is it hunting? Is it fishing? Is it crossword puzzles? If that's you, if that's your manly, know, is what you do? Is it shooting guns and making things blow up? Oh, he's a real man's Man. Listen, I like all that stuff. I get all that. I think we should be able to probably impart that into some young men. That's a good thing. That's not toxic masculinity. That's what I call masculinity. But brothers, listen to me. Well, Kyle, I don't go hunting, and I don't like camping, and I don't blow stuff up. I guess I'm not a man. Not true. That is not the definition of anything that the Bible ever depicts as what's manly and not manly. Did y'all know that? Can I just say that from the pulpit? Can I just be a man who likes hunting and thinks that everybody should blow stuff up? To tell you men that that's not the definition of what it means to be a man? I know a lot of people who like hunting and blowing stuff up who are failing at manhood. Is it your love of self and pleasure? What can I get out of this thing? What can I, me, me, me? The me monster of oftentimes we see depicted in, in our culture when it comes to men. Or will it be a knowledge of Christ and an example you left behind of one who loved them, including mom, their mom, in the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is what it truly means to be a man. I remember speaking at a men's conference a couple of years back in Iowa, and there was about, I don't, between... probably about six to 800 men that were there. I can't remember the number, but it was up there. And I was the speaker at the men's uh, conference or the men's uh, weekend. And I remember when I stood up to all the men, I did something different than they had actually been exposed to or saw. I don't know about you, but I don't like fake stuff. I don't do really good with like cheesy, fake, and I'm going to put on a show kind of thing. That's not who I am. I get in trouble on the other end of that because I'm too honest, Possibly. But I just don't. I don't deal with fake. I don't like cheese very often. And I know that as a man going to conference after conference, what do we do as men? Sometimes I think everybody means well. They have a guy come up and they're like, "Hey, hey, men! Oh, I got a flannel t-shirt. I got a flannel on, and I kill things. And, and and it's this like hyper, hyper masculine kind of like I was in the army. I was a, I was a police officer. I played football. I know, we we mean well. We mean well. My brothers and sisters, listen to me once again. That is not the definition of a man. Just because you were able to kick a football or run it into a touchdown and said, I love Jesus sprinkled in there, or they, that's not the, necessarily what it means to be a man. How many times I went to so many conferences with this hyper, hyper, this issue. I knew men in the room who did not grow up with fathers who I think probably sat there sometimes and wondered, am I a real man? I don't shoot anything. I don't hunt. Got one of my friends in the church literally who didn't have a father growing up. He did none of those things. I took him hunting once. It, and I, I'm surprised he even lived. That is not what made him a man. But I watched him at the conference, and you just see this like, I'm not that kind of a man. Speaking at that men's conference, I, I just prayed really hard, desperately, how God, how should I approach these men? I believe that they probably did ask me to be a speaker because I was in the military. I actually did like hunting, and I was a believer. I was a pastor. I don't know if that was the only reason, but I think that everything fit the box. As I stood up in front of that group of men, the first night when they invited me up to speak, my kids are, Elijah at least can be a testament to this, he was there. And don't y'all start laughing at me. The first thing I did when I showed up, do well, you think I started doing that's exactly right, I hate all y'all, all of y'all, y'all just, you know, real men cry, okay, That's a, a real man cries, Scott, it's not blowing up stuff, it's crying, right, I walked up to those group of men and I said, this weekend I will come to you as a broken man, probably speaking to many broken men. And I'm not going to be a hyperinflated self of egotism or manliness or masculinity. All I'm going to do is come to you in weakness and trembling as the Apostle Paul said. I beseech ye brethren. I beg ye brethren. When you see when Paul writes that in the the epistles. He is literally a weeping puddle of a mass of just begging people to listen. So I came to those men and said. I beg every one of you this weekend to listen to what I have to say. I beg you. I beg you. And you know what? It worked. Because no one had ever came to them that it was a man and begged to be heard on a weekend. I beg you men to listen. Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The word heart here in verse 5 is labab. It's from it's Hebrew, it means inner man. It means the mind or will. It's the seat of knowledge. So we think of heart as the seat of emotion. That's an American Western construct. The heart was the place of thinking for the Jew. And so what it's saying here is you are to be loving the Lord with your mind. Love the Lord your God with your study. Love the Lord your God with your reading of the word. Love the Lord your God with your thinking about him in prayer and conversations, conversations and your teaching. Yes, men, listen to me. Well, I don't really like to read. Read. Well, I don't really, I just, I, just, I don't really, not, Stop. Love the Lord your God with your mind. Grow some things in there. Like, water it and feed it. God expects, it's lazy not to. Love the Lord your God with your mind. Do not see us engaging, I mean, let the world see us engaging in deep study and desire and knowledge of God. I want to know who he is. I want, I want people to see that I need to know more. I desire to know all I can about God, the gospel and his word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The next is love your God with all your soul. Soul comes from that Hebrew word, which is the seat of emotion. It's life or passion. This is the place of emotion. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, which means with all your emotion that you can possess. And that looks different from everybody, doesn't it? Listen, I know, I know people who cry inside their souls. They don't do like me. I can't contain it. Or there's men, who, like, women too, the, the, the throats are hurting because they want to cry, but they just hold it in. That doesn't happen to me very often. How are you loving the Lord with your life, your time? Do your children and even wife see a man who is passionate about the things of God? are running after, uh, 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 like, like, like literally I need some food I haven't eaten in 40 days, kind of I need God. I haven't drank any water in three days and I'm in the desert and I am I'm longing for more of the, of, the, of the water of God's word. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your seat of emotion. With all your might, it says next in the text. Which means diligently, exceedingly, or abundantly. It's strength and self-control. Fathers, do your children, do our children see us loving and living for Christ in importance above anything else and everything else? Not saying that these other things are bad. However, if we are fathers, have, have, have we taught little Billy or Sally to keep his or her eye on the ball... And if we do that, and yet we do a lousy job at teaching him or her to keep their eyes on Christ, then we have failed as fathers. Keep your eye on the prize. Brothers and sisters, the prize is Jesus Christ. He is the treasure of our souls. Question, how often should I or you men be involved with this? Our text says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Diligently means constant in effort to accomplish something. It means that we're actively doing this. We're not perfect, but we we, we seek to do this as a character of what it means to be a father. It says talk of them. Now in order to talk of them, you have to do something with your mouth, man. Guess what that means? Open it and say something. Men sometimes men are characterized as the worst who don't share or talk about hardly anything. You talk about football, you get them talking, You talk about hunting, you get them talking, talking about Christ, his word, the gospel, parenting, wives, and watch them go crickets. In that moment, you're maybe be, you're passionate of the wrong things, and if anything, you have them in in the wrong order. I love hunting. Trust me, you want to talk about hunting? Let's get talk. I'm 25 hours of talking of hunting. But I love talking about Jesus a whole lot more. A whole lot more. It says talk to them, which means men, you have to be committed to dialogue. Opening your mouth and talking with your children, maybe even talking with your wives. As you t- be diligent to talk of them, it says as you sit. Fathers, what are you doing when you are sitting in your houses? Is it only, I'm not saying that TV's wrong, or reading a good book, or Facebook, or I'm not saying any of that stuff, I'm just saying that if that's all we are doing as fathers, we are failing biblically and historically as what it means to be a man. As you sit. Again, these things are not evil things, however, do you allow any of them from keeping you from talking with your children on a daily basis concerning Christ within your homes? And it's a regular part of what you are and do as a man. It goes on to say, not only as you sit, but talk as you walk by the way. I love this one specifically. The question is, as you are going... I love to hunt. I love to fish. Uh, uh, This uh, was a Saturday. Saturday, I took Josiah. We went fishing together. We went out. I needed to get him out of the house and, and do some things. As we were going, as we were doing life and having fun in some aspects, I had a great opportunity to talk to Josiah about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question of baptism. And what does baptism mean? What does it signify? Josiah, I want to know as a pastor, but also as your dad, can you articulate the gospel? Josiah, what is the gospel? He gave his answer. That is a great answer. But there are some nuances that possibly were missing in the moment. So I was filling in the nuance. Sometimes it's not a sit down. Today we're going to read a Bible verse and talk about it in 15 minutes. Sometimes it's just being a Christian man in life, pouring into others. It can be in a hunting trip. It can be. It's, it's, it's as you are going, as you walk by the way goes on in the text, when you lie down and when you rise. Are you seeing a picture here, men? This is the overarching and primary task of Christian fathers. God's word does not allow for us to check out. We cannot check out as dads. Brothers, do not be complacent or silent with your children. Be there, really be there. Show up. Know and understand just how important you truly are. You are so important. No matter what the world may be telling you, God in his word establishes something far different and far better. Even during uh, uh, Obama's uh, presidency, they were looking at some stats and numbers about some things that were going on with criminals and criminal justice system and things that, the, 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 the the numbers of, that were going on. And even Obama came out and said, one of the great issues that we have before us is an issue of fatherlessness. You don't roll with liberal politics roll with that truth out of obama's mouth it's true i agree with him on that and the numbers were agreeing with him on that for listen brothers if you are not there if you are silent i promise you the world will be there and the world will teach in your place it will be happy to take your children's hand and lead them we must through god's means Do so in its place. The world shall not fill our children with the truth and the hope. That is not truth and that is not hope. That is our responsibility to do. A Puritan pastor once wrote by the name of Richard Baxter. Listen to this in the 1700s. If you are ungodly and teach not your families the fear of God, nor contradict the sins of the company you're in, nor turn the stream of their vain talking, nor deal plainly about their salvation. They will take it as if you preach to them that such things are needless and that they may boldly do so as well as you. No silence is not nice. Not when it comes to this. Look at me in verse 8. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, And they shall be a frontlets between your eyes. God's word, the Ten Commandments. If you see uh, when it says to bind them around your hands, that is tefillin. It's basically this little box that goes right here in in Judaism. And and then what it does is it wraps around with leather and it goes around the the, the arm. And it says there that in there is the law of God. It's the Shema. This holy text is placed there upon the, the hands. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Jews who have that little box that goes right here in their their forehead. That is the phylactery. And in the phylactery, the same thing, the law of God, the Shema, the holy text that we have before us is there. He says, you shall bind them to your hands and your heads. And that's the reason why they do that. I think of something else that goes on my hand. A wedding ring. Some people may have, you know, when, you, when you're about to forget something, you know, some people, whether they do, well, they, they, they tie something around their, their finger. Have you seen that? Trying to remember the things that they can't remember. Some people get a tattoo in the place of rings or this. Listen, it's to remind us of something that we promised to, something that we want to keep and remember. Tie God's word to your hands as a remembrance. Tie them to the the frontlets of your face, basically before you. When you look out into the world, as you see the world through the eyes that are human, may it be done so through the uh, the, um, the prism of God's word. Tie them to your frontlets. Right on doorposts, it says in the text, and on the gates. This is because our example is just as important as what we say. This is the out there's of being a believer. When you leave your house, Write them to remind you. When you leave your gate to go out into the world, remind yourself of why you're leaving and how you're to come back. Your responsibility as Christian fathers and men, specifically just men, does not stop at bringing your children to church. It doesn't. It's not allowing your youth minister or pastor to teach your children alone. It's not to allow that to be a job merely for your wife to do. Men, do not do that. It is primarily your job and responsibility. And even this morning, the pastor's sitting here with the text, and I'm being reminded, "Uh uh-oh, Pastor Kyle, don't forget. Don't forget. How well do you not only speak what is true before your children, brothers, but live out those truths as well before them? how you speak towards other people, how do you conduct your business, how you live your, with your wife, how you handle conflict. It's all important. J.C. Ryle has said of this. Fathers and mothers, parents, sp- f- f- fathers specifically this morning, do not forget that children learn more by the eye than what they do with the ear. Imitation is far stronger principle with children than memory. What they see has a much stronger effect on their minds than what they are told. No, 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 no. In Christianity, it is not about men who say, do as I say, not as I do. It's do as I say and what I do as a model to our children. Maybe I'm sharing a little too much. I remember when I was 10 years old, I was, in the, I was in the garage at my house, and I have an uncle. I won't mention anything. He might be watching this. Repent. Um, and I remember being there, and the man, like, like the, the, I'm just being frank, you know, he, the man loved marijuana, right? He loved it. Yeah, he was sitting there smoking. I smelled it. I knew exactly what it was. like, hmm, what's that? I go into the garage, and I have my, uh, he's, he's like 10 years older than me, but he, he's sitting there. I'm a 10-year-old, so he's probably around, you know, 1920 himself. He's sitting there just, just toking it up just fog of smoke, and I'll walk in on him, and I remember looking at me and going, now, Kyle, don't ever start this. This is not good for you. As a 10-year-old, I'm going, well, first off, I'm sold because I'm looking at you, and I'm not going to ever do that again. Like, if, if he is the poster child of what marijuana does, then I don't want it, Right? So it worked in that sense. But can you imagine if we as fathers are constantly looking at our kids, and I know, like I said, maybe the illustration isn't rolling real well, but the fact is, is don't do this. Words. But what does dad do? They will learn from what you do far greater possibly than what you teach. Let's make sure that neither of those contradict each other. Now I'm going to do something in closing today. I thought about all of the ways in which I can conclude, and I love a picture in history. How many of you ever heard of the missionary John G. Patton? He went to the New Hebrides Islands, sold everything he had. He literally took a coffin with him, filled it up with all his belongings in a coffin because he was never to return. That's his thought, he was never going to return. There's some really wonderful accounts of his missionary journey, but what I don't want to talk about him today. I want to talk to you about his dad real quick in closing. There was a small room, John G. Patton, as I was reading his autobiography, he talks about his father a great deal in a section of his autobiography. There was a small room, the closet, where his father would go to pray, and as a rule, after each meal, the 11 children, he was one of 11 kids, hello, knew it, and they reverenced the spot and learned something profound about God. The impact of John Patton was immense. Because of his father. And I want to read you in quote, page eight from that section. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable cat- catastrophe to be swept out of memory, were blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in the sanctuary closet of my father. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God, would hurl back all doubt. With a victorious appeal, he walked with God. Why may not I? He said of his dad. Page twenty-one, he picks up and says, How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I came never I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand, when on his knees, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and to love him as our divine friend because of his Father. One scene best captured the depth of love between John and his father and the power of the impact of John's life, of an uncompromising courage and purity of a man. The time came for the young Patton to leave home and go to Glasgow to attend divinity school and become a city missionary in his early 20s. From his hometown of Torthenwald to the train station of Kilmarnock was a 40-mile walk 40 years later. 40 years later from that moment that he was leaving to go to seminary to go to the New Hebrides Islands to never see his father ever again, he wrote of this of his father, and this is where I want to end. I quote, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. It's 40 years later. And tears are on my cheek as I freely now, as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene, for the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulder. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was but vanity. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God. Prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more. His lips kept moving in silent prayers. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could. And when about to turn a corner in the road where we would lose sight, he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing there with his head uncovered where I had last left him gazing still yet after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into a side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed to the dike to see if he had yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me He did not see me, and after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart I felt sure, still rising in prayer for me. I watched through blinding tears, till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and oft all my life, by the help of God, to live and to act so as to never to grieve and dishonor such a father and a mother that he had given to me, end quote. This is the power and the legacy of a godly father, to never see him again. As I started this morning with the first illustration, as I talk about Der- Derek Redmond's run in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. And I end with this story. I want to say something in closing, and I will be done. Aren't you grateful that we have a father who makes both of these fathers look like nothing in comparison? I am so grateful. That at the end of days, we will stand before the Father of our soul. And I try not to be too trivial. I try not to. But I love the word because it's so childlike. We will look in the hand, the eyes. Or the, we will look in the presence of an almighty God, holy, righteous, and good, who deserves to punish us in our sins. And yet we get to look at our dad, our Father in heaven, who loves us enough to come the whole way, to save us unsavables. Amen. God in Jesus Christ has come the entire distance so that for all of us who don't have an earthly example of a good father, let me tell you, we have a father that puts all of us to shame. And he is worth our love, adoration, and respect. This morning, what I want to do is this and this only. Men, I want to encourage you I want you to be reminded and remind each other of this role and the significance of being a father and to be, forget fatherhood, I know it's Father's Day, to be a godly man in this world.